Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to have you with us in the first of this year's series of podcasts. Our guest today is Dr. David Abrams, the executive director of the Stephen A. Schroeder National Institute for Tobacco Research and Policy Studies at the American Legacy Foundation in Washington. Uh, the Schroeder Institute advances the science of understanding tobacco use behavior with emphasis on collaboration and discovering extraordinary opportunities to inform basic mechanisms, practice, and policy to accelerate the reduction in the prevalence of tobacco use in the United States. Prior to that, Dr. Abrams served as the director of the Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research at the National Institutes of Health, and prior to that was a distinguished professor at Brown University where he contributed a great deal to the scholarly literature on issues of addiction and behavioral medicine, especially with tobacco. David, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to have you here. And I'd like to talk in this podcast about your work on systems modeling. And this will be a term unfamiliar to many people, but one that's potentially very important. So maybe you could give us just a brief description of what's meant by systems modeling, and then we can get into specifics about how it might be important. Well, uh, systems modeling is comes from an engineering perspective. And uh, really what it's about is thinking that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, that um, there's a certain amount of complexity even in things that appear to be very simple because generally things are influenced by the context within which they occur. So, for example, an individual's eating is colored and influenced by perhaps the family's eating or the culture within which they grew up that certainly you know, contributes to certain habits. So the idea is if you look at systems, you're actually looking at different sources of influence and what one might call feedback loops that change people's behavior either in intended or sometimes unintended ways. Okay, so some surprising things may actually be determinants of behavior. And so if one wants to change public policy, let's say, to decrease smoking or improve diet or whatever it is, you have to be aware from a systems modeling point of view of all the different inputs and how the factors affect one another. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So, for example, um, in the tobacco area, it might be that you want to reduce youth uptake of smoking, but to the extent that you might advertise that you want to do that, the natural sort of rebelliousness that happens during adolescence may come back to bite you. So that, in fact, the more you try to reduce it, the more you might see an uptake in youth uh, tobacco smoking for the very reason that they want to show you that they're going to do the opposite of what you want to do. So knowing that gives you some new leverage points for how you might do prevention in a different way. So you had mentioned that the government is paying more attention to these systems approaches now and thinking about how to, how to um, uh, prevent disease and go about the issue of uh, making the population healthier. Can you give some examples of how this is being considered at least? Um, sure. Uh, I mean, one way is that if you look at, say, the relationship between um, the developments and innovations, let's say, in technology, um, they have intended and unintended consequences. So, for example, um, 
we are much more sedentary than we were five or ten years ago, and that that's accelerating because of the technology where you can carry your communications device and talk to anybody at any time, and so there's less incentive to travel, to walk, and so the whole population is changing in terms of its physical activity levels in ways that we didn't realize might be dramatically contributing to what we now call the obesity epidemic or the huge increase in uh, type 2 diabetes, for example. You know, I was reminded of an example of a graduate student here at Yale who was working on a very interesting project, <clears throat> Look, who, and he was interested in exposure to air pollution, and he was interested in looking at what happens if people uh, actually take on the recommended levels of physical activity and they go outside and exercise more? And he was making the point that there would be health benefit from that, but they would also be exposed to more air pollution because mm -hmm. they would be outside running up and down the streets when the cars are going by and things like that. And he wanted to, to model these sort of things to figure out what the overall cost-benefit would be. And that struck me as an example of the kind of thing you're talking about, that if you understand all these inputs and all these feedback loops, then you get a sense of how these things work together. That's right. Now, you had mentioned an interesting example from the SARS epidemic and modeling that and how behavioral science uh, became an interesting part of that picture once people found out that it was a missing piece. Could you explain that? Sure. Um, the National Institute of Health was very interested in trying to understand how the SARS epidemic both spread and how it was then contained and actually didn't lead to what might have been a world uh, problem in terms of viral spread of the epidemic. Um, so they began to look at the actual data on who caught the SARS virus, when they caught it, and who were the people around them. And, you know, they came up with some biologic measures of how rapidly or likely it was to spread from one person to another. And then they began to do some computer simulation models to try to predict the actual spread that they had measured of the real virus. And they found that as long as they just used the biologic predictors of the virility of the virus and how easily it might be caught by another person, they couldn't replicate the actual curves of the real data. It was only when they began to put in the social behavior of the people around those that caught the virus and how people had taken precautions like wearing masks or slowing down their, their uh, use of airplanes, that they began to uh, mimic the curves of the actual virus. So that actually led the National Institutes of Health to be much more interested in integrating the behavioral and social science along with the biologic science in beginning to perhaps develop some models that, for example, now may be very helpful in guiding us if we ever have um, the big epidemic that they're predicting might occur from the, um, is it H5N1 virus? You know, another example that I've heard you use that I think is very instructive in this regard is the experience with prevention of heart disease in Finland. And you were mentioning the, the well-known North Karelia project there and how that teaches us something about systems and intervening at various levels. Could you give us a description of that for a moment? Sure. Um, the North Karelia project was uh, very fascinating. In the early 70s, um, the Finland researchers found that North Karelia had the highest uh, mortality from heart disease in the entire world. And they decided they wanted to do something about it. So they started looking at the reasons for this. And they found that it was fairly typical of the risk factors that we see in America, high fat diets, 
uh, consequence of heavy smoking, uh, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. And so they began to analyze the North Karelian diet, and they designed community-based interventions that actually, at multiple levels, engaged the, not only the community, but even the manufacturers of the food and the government. So at the different levels, they got kind of a coordination that you often don't see in America because of all sorts of competing interests. So they were actually able to get uh, essentially the entire province of North Karelia to change their behavior over a, a 20 or 30 year period and they dramatically reduced their mortality that's the death rate from heart disease from the highest in the world to a reasonable level in fact over the last 30 years the reduction is over 80 percent and so they brought the province of North, province of North Karelia back in line with the average heart disease of the rest of Finland but they also applied the lessons learned in North Korea to the the rest of Finland after doing the experiment for 10 years. And now what we see is that the entire nation of Finland has reduced its mortality from heart disease by about 75% in the short time period of 30 years, which is about one generation. So it shows me very dramatically that we can change human behavior on a large scale. We can turn an entire population to become much healthier. And we can do it as long as there's political will and the cooperation of every system and every level in the community, from the government to the industries to the food makers to the retailers to the neighborhoods and to the, the households and the families and the parents and the kids. If everybody works together to the common goal, you can really achieve very dramatic results in one generation towards a completely healthy nation. Well, those are remarkable results by any definition. And they stand in contrast to three programs in the United States that were more or less contemporaries of the Finnish program, but focused more on individual education and behavior change, one in Minnesota, one in California, and one in Rhode Island that didn't get anywhere near the results that they found in Finland. And so that would suggest to me, and it sounds like you would agree from what you just said, that involving systems like uh, getting the food industry to change their behavior, changing laws, changing the social climate, changing the social drivers of these diseases is an important thing to combine with individual change efforts. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's essential, and I think it's actually critical that what we call the upstream drivers, uh, the macroeconomics and the political will, um, are absolutely critical to driving large-scale population change so you can really make a difference um, in terms of both cost savings as well as healthier and longer-lived lives. You know, I imagine that you would agree with the following statement, but I'll be curious to see you expand on this. If we think about actions that are being taken now to, to address prevention of obesity or to improve the nation's diets, there are a lot of things going on, many activities around the country. You have programs in schools to try to get rid of the junk foods in schools and put a physical education back in the curriculum. You have people working on menu labeling in restaurants. You have people now talking about taxes on things like sugared beverages. And there's a pretty long list of these things that are now being attempted, but relatively little information available, at least yet, on how they work 
in comparison to one another or how they might interact with one another. And this strikes me as an ideal place where some systems modeling work might be very helpful. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think another lesson learned from the tobacco uh, example, for, ex- uh, for example, is that when you look at uh, a combination of things at the policy level, like increasing the tax on, t- on cigarettes, but you add to that restrictions in the workplace, and you add to that prevention programs in the schools, where you actually even teach the kids to go home and talk to their parents about quitting smoking. So you, you know, sort of have the systems within systems influencing each other. It's far more likely to help uh, a parent begin to think about quitting, become motivated to quit. And actually what's also very important is that most people um, think that they can do this on their own with willpower. And often it's more than that. So the education also has to involve educating consumers um, not only about the knowledge, but what are the best ways to quit uh, what is the evidence-based practice that allows you to successfully stop smoking? And I would imagine the same is true for weight management or increasing exercise, that a lot of people think they can sort of do it on their own, uh, and some can, uh, but also there are evidence-based treatments that are very powerful, but they only work within the context of a supportive environment. So I could see this being very powerful technology to apply and expertise to apply to the obesity issue. and. This could very much help us define more closely what the drivers are of the problem. And then more important than that even, of course, are where the points of intervention are. What will be the most effective use of public health dollars? What will be the most effective policies? And how can we best help people by making these decisions? So it'll be, it'll be very nice to see this modeling approach applied in the obesity area. So thank you so much for joining us. It was a delight to have you. You're welcome. So our guest today was Dr. David Abrams from the American Legacy Foundation in Washington and noted scholar in the area of tobacco. Uh, Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, including a list of the other podcasts that we've recorded with outstanding guests to the Rudd Center. Thank you.